0: Last 10 years, 15 years, a number of studies have come out that both have identified that, you know, 30 to 50 percent of the patients coming through the ED, by the time they leave the ED, sometime in that that, um, period, they become uh, fluid unresponsive. So, you know, if you're continuing to give fluids as they leave the ED and up into the ICU, you could be putting them at risk of fluid overload and causing increased uh, comorbidities that don't necessarily need to either it could have even been prevented so that's kind of their the cool the or the clinical one that, he, that we had identified when we started Let, let's be more precise let's help clinicians be more precise with fluids and give them a way to identify when these patients are no longer benefiting so that we can stop um giving the fluids and really improve patient
1: patiency joe tell me the truth are you batman
0: i wish Really. I do. Uh, I do enjoy the uh, you know the st- steep clips and uh, uh, Doppler echoes or, or some similarities, but I'm not uh, not personally.
1: So deep dive there uh, for everyone who's listening. Uh, Joe uh, used to co-own a rock climbing gym and also works uh, with echoes. Uh, so that's why there's that uh, not so not so finely crafted uh, introduction to this podcast. But welcome to How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. My name is Jeff, and on this pod, we hope to share with you the stories, experiences, and skills of people who are making an impact on the health spans and lifespans of individuals the world over. This time around, we have the inimitable Dr. Joe Ibel, CEO and co-founder of Flowsonics Medical. Joe, how are you doing? Yeah,
0: great. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate the fact that you made time despite your busy schedule. Um, Let's just dive right into it. Um, Joe, your story starts at UBC, my alma mater, and clearly the best university in Canada. Um, And you eventually went on to Laurentian University where you did a PhD in biomolecular science where your thesis was on the characterization of small molecules which aim to block the function of nerve growth factors as potential drug candidates. That thesis was submitted in 2012. And there's mention of your postdoc work in bioengineering later on. So maybe the best question here is, why was bioengineering the focus of your postdoc work? And was it out of interest to focus on a later pivot to entrepreneurship or desire to develop skills later applicable to the buy side?
0: Yeah, great, great question. So maybe start at the start. Uh, so, you know, I, when I went to um, undergrad at west, I had the good fortune of living residents and one of the things about university aside from the education thought as great is the the network the friends the lifelong relationships that come out of um those experiences and you know, fast forward to present and um, co-founded Fosonics with uh one of their uh, co- one of my college roommates and one of our other uh college roommates is leading our uh, clinical implementation team. So you're uh a room with Warren, five, four people that uh, that lived in it. Three of us are working in the company. The other guys are a cardiologists that we work with. So you're an amazing group of individuals and and uh, relationships that came out of you know the dorm life in uh, in UBC or in, in Vancouver in the uh, the early days. I came back home to do. Grad studies, so I'm, I'm from Sudbury, is so where the the company's headquarters located, and really the um, coming back to to the Northern Interior School of Medicine and Life University, which is where I did my PhD, was you know I've always been really interested in physiology and how to um, ask questions that have direct benefits to patient care, and you know the Physiology that I was doing in my PhD was really bench work, but what it, it set a really nice foundation of how to ask a question that is difficult to answer, or that you know answers can be kind of nebulous. And what's the right next question to ask? And I think it's a really valuable skill set for you know, a number of careers. But at that time, I thought I was going into um, academia, so the transition into the Uh, bioengineering post uh, was really about looking for new small molecules that are biological options in any number of of, uh, pharmaceutical applications, but that were basically coming from extreme environments. So what I was doing was looking for ways to identify small molecule scaffolds that can benefit that had pharmaceutical or biological properties from industrial processes. So Sudbury is a big mining town and the project that we were working on was basically looking through um, uh, healing ponds in the, uh, the mine mine remediation areas that surround the smelters in, uh, in Sudbury, culturing the bacteria, stressing them with environmental stressors and then looking for the active ingredients or, or, or small molecules that come out of a really interesting project as part of that i was doing um i was using flow monitors that hire that were basically based in doppler ultrasound so it's kind of an industrial process and monitoring flow and and growing the bacteria and culturing them into uh, into scale where we could extract kind of usable quantities of uh, small molecules so Really interesting. Uh, and it was right around the time that I was finishing that post author, uh, John Mule Kenny, who's my co-founder for Sonics. He trained at, uh, U for med school. And I went to NYU for internal medicine and then to Stanford for his, uh, pulmonary critical care fellowship. We, we got together kind of at the same time and he said, Hey, you know, there's, there's, I was talking about what I was doing. He's like, yeah, dude, I had this really, um. I, you know, I had an idea for something that sounds similar, except there'd be in the body, we'd be using Doppler ultrasound to measure blood flow. It's like, blood flow is actually really difficult to measure right now, clinically at the bedside. You need expensive equipment. It's a, you know, 30 to 40 minute workflow by the time you start and then you're looking to do that same assessment, you know, the next hour or the next uh, two hours from now, it just, it takes up an awful lot of my clinical time. And I just wish there was a fast and easy way to measure blood flow. So, you know, do you think we could build a technology where you can basically put a wearable over any of the central arteries and get beat to beat blood flow metrics? In? Yes. And yes, I'm thinking about what I was doing in the postdoc. Is like, you know, we're doing this in an industrial process right now. People are doing it clinically with handheld advice today. You know, let's work on a problem of building a patch that I can wireless easily wirelessly transmit that data to a clinician at the bedside. And that was really the, the genesis of Flosonics and the, the founding uh, founding moment. And what's, I think what's really interesting about that is, you know, it's that, that Steve Jobs quote that you can only connect the dots looking backwards, right? If you would have asked me when I was in my PhD, what I'd be doing 10 years from now, I don't, I don't know that I would have said... Doppler ultrasound. But Peter told me that I'd be working with uh, people that I really admire and that I find to actually um, stimulating, and you know that we we enjoy our uh, tackling the same problems. So yeah, of course I I'd be doing something in that vein. So I think entrepreneurship, um, you know, building a team and building a new technology really draw from a lot of those experiences.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think two questions kind of stem off that answer of yours. Number one is, why was patient care always a focus of any research that you did?
0: Um, yeah. I mean, I think for me, uh, science, biology, physiology have always been uh, interesting to me. In and where well, I thought my career would go just somewhere in there, you know, whether it's um, small molecules and pharmaceuticals, or if it wears implants and bioengineering, or if it wears what we're doing now, which is wearable ultrasound, all of those are, are, yeah, require fundamental understanding of the human condition, the human body, how we're responding to environmental factors, physiologic factors, and disease processes. And the interplay between those is, you know, <laughs> a picture complex problem. But also something that almost everybody on the planet is going to encounter in their life at some point. Hopefully, yep. it's, it's uh you know at the, the later stages. But for many people, it's you know early and often. And anything that, that um, we can do to advance our knowledge on how to better identify, treat, prevent, uh, be proactive in uh, the management, increase safety, and increase uh, the likelihood of a positive outcome for you know, loved ones, family or uh, any patient that clinician a clinicians caring for. I think that's a really meaningful pursuit. And something that I think anybody that works in the in the medical or clinical industry has is a, you know, an underpinning to their what gets some out of bed in the morning.
1: Mm-hmm. I think uh, you had began working with Doppler during your postdoc, which explains the application of Doppler uh, ultrasound to the clinical workflow and as someone who's done work in the ED, I understand that there is immense value to being able to assess fluid status uh, and all the other metrics of blood flow associated with it uh, to ensuring a quality patient experience. Uh, before we dive more into that, um, we learned a little bit about the story behind the founding of your company. But your company was initially named, forget me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, KE2 Technologies. How did that come about? And why did the name change to Flowsonics, And then was flow patch something that changed or w- was determined before that?
0: Oh, yeah all all great questions. I think this is really common in yeah. uh, entrepreneurship, especially for folks that are coming out of a technical background. Like my my, um, I'm becoming more aware and uh, how can important marketing mm-hmm. and me, but that that wasn't their focus. So when we started the company as uh, my last name's Idle. Um, John's last name is Kenny. Hey, and then my brother's the other co-founder in the company. So Kenny Aibo This So that's <laughs> uh, the creativity. Yeah, exactly. So it was, it was kind of around the time when, yeah. um, you know, the first, first stages, especially for a first time entrepreneur, there's a lot of puzzle pieces that you want to line up and make sure that there's no hard stops in the way or no insurmountable hurdle potential IP, any physiologic mm-hmm. reason that it wouldn't work, any, uh, you know, legislative, legal, yeah, t- take your pick, just, um, you know, getting making sure that the business models all end up. So it's it kind of after we got um, through that phase of, yeah, there's, there's a real business here and we're going to uh, go full-time at this. That was kind of when, you know, our first investor with us and said, hey guys, who love what you're doing. Uh, I think we could do better on the name. So is uh where we start with full And then flow patch is really uh, more of a lining up what the product does. It's yeah. a patch and it measures just flow one flow. So let's say uh, ho- hopefully they're a, a better name than uh KQ, which just really all for tongue.
1: Exactly. I'm really disappointed that you that you did away with that name. Um I guess the the natural question that rolls off that is I've seen the Flow Patch described as a smart bandage. How do you feel about that name? And does that adequately describe what your product does to the layman?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great, um, it's like wearable ultrasound coupled with, I think that the, the bandage is, it does have an adhesive component. I get where it's coming from, but it's not you, great. you lean towards patch. Uh, as it, you know, it's maybe more yeah. sophisticated than bandage. Yeah. And I think the other thing that bandage kind of implies is that there's a, a wound or some, yeah something that needs dressing, uh, below it. So, you know, wearable wireless Doppler is really how we, uh, think about it and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to wear the Doppler enables a number of, um, new modalities that and clinical applications that haven't been accessible at the bedside before. Yeah. You can imagine doing any intervention to a patient and then be able to watch how it's impacting blood flow in real time. And you know, that's something that is we, we've been able to measure blood pressure for a long time, yeah. invasively beat beat with like an arterial line or something, but to be able to get at, at blood flow, which is which is very different than blood pressure, um, and be able to assess it directly on your iPhone, like that, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty powerful.
1: Absolutely. Um, to, to dig more into the, the genesis of, uh, your company, what was the role of the clinician? So in, in this case, uh, Dr. Kenny, um, in the startup and how did his role contrast to what the rest of your team did when it came to validating and prototyping the flow patch?
0: Yeah, I I'd say it was, it was kind of front and center. If yeah. you, you know, you take a look at the founding teams, myself, my, my brother and John, John's certainly the visionary part of the three of us, you know, the person who had a very strong grasp of the clinical need, the types of patients we were aiming to. How are the kind of looking forward and saying what you know, what could this, this technology be in the future? There yeah, the rules that uh, my brother had really, he's a really strong operator. So you know something needs to get done. So figure out if I put a team together and execute on it. And I think my strengths probably on, on synthesis or being able to get pieces together to both be able to fund the company, communicate what we're doing and really, um, translating the clinical I need into a business model that works. mm
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess maybe this is a theoretical comparison that you can't really speak to, but how do you think the experience would have differed if it was an engineering and operating based team that brought clinicians in from the outside instead of, have, instead of, instead of having a clinician from the like, outset?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's Far more, um, common for successful companies and successful technologies to start from the clinical unmet need and, uh, develop a solution for that rather than the, you know, having a technology and looking for a place that it can be used, mm-hmm. both, both can work, right? It's the, you know, do you have a hammer, do you start with a hammer? Or did you start with a nail? And, you know, when you have a hammer, with the score realm wasn't go control, at it. And yeah. You know, if you're in the you figure out how to build a hammer to, uh, yep. to get it. So, yeah, you know, for us, it was, it was certainly starting with the patient, starting with the, the clinical lens and what does the, the physician, the nurse, the paramedic need to be able to, in a technology, to be able to make a better clinical decision mm-hmm. in, in real time, I think mm-hmm. that was really neat at the founding, but. You know flip side is probably the point there are three or four really great technologies that are you uh, know started with the technology that found us uh, home. yeah uh in clinical medicine so it can go both ways for sure
1: absolutely um so you've talked uh, a little bit throughout your answers about what exactly the flow patch does and you've mentioned kind of in a in a quick summary that it allows for a visualization, easy visualization of blood flow using Doppler ultrasound uh, with ease that has not been able to achieved before. But for those who require more in-depth explanation as to what visualizing blood flow does clinically or what applications it has by the bedside, what does measuring blood flow actually give you insight into?
0: Yeah, great great question. So if you think of the analogy of just a a garden hose and what you're trying to measure is how much water is coming out of the end of the hose, you know, ask yourself, what would be the measure that you're looking for? You're looking to measure the pressure on the outside of the hose, like how tough the hose is to squeeze with your fingers, or would you rather just measure the water coming out of the hose? And if you substitute water for blood and the end of the hose for the vital organs that you're um, trying to perfuse, the brain, the uh, heart, the lungs, the other vascular beds, or other other tissue beds in the uh, in the body, while well, really what you're looking to do is measure flow. There's a number of times where people can look at a, a blood pressure number; it, it could be in kind of the normal range, it could be even maybe a little bit high, but. Flow well, can be grossly impaired or dramatically impaired because the vascular tree, the vessels are clamped, on or that there's some uh, resistant problem in the system that you know, is making the the pressure number look okay, but the patient's actually uh, you know up, up, up in critical critical illness and getting worse because they're they're not perfusing those vital organs, and really that's what what well, um, helps you measure. Th- there have been a number of other technologies that have been, uh, validated for blood flow measurements. Ultra bedside cart-based ultrasound is the obvious one. Uh, but there's invasive, uh, catheters. There's, um, there dilution techniques that, uh, yeah, been used in the cardiac and operative setting as well. But really what we were looking to do is what's something that can be used universally early care in any clinical setting that's easy enough for a nurse to deploy in 30 seconds and be able to make an informed management decision mm-hmm. on a patient who's crashing in front of them. And that's really where, where Floatbox sets itself apart from any other uh, technology that's previously you know been targeting that real-time blood flow measurement.
1: Absolutely. And I think another uh important application of ultrasound is fluid status. So I don't understand exactly the connection between blood flow and assessing fluid status overall. Uh is there a use case in terms of identifying fluid status through just a one point Doppler uh measurement uh uh as Flowpatch does?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really great question and it's an important distinction and so first caveat, I'm not a clinician. So, you know, take that for, for what it is, but I've spent a lot of time talking to clinicians about it. But I think the distinction is our fluid status is a clinical definition. It's, you know, is this patient dry do they, do they have too much fluid? And um, you know, what's their ins and outs, where, where are we, you know, and there's signs of hyperperfusion. There's a lot that goes into that clinical diagnosis what patch does is looks at how the addition of morph fluids is helping or potentially putting your patient at risk of volume overload. But for patients patients, uh, you know, in, in the area where you've given them a bit of fluids already, there are signs that they um, are at risk of you know, having a little too much fluid already on board, lines in the lungs, or maybe they've got some kidney history, and you're you're there's, you're so concerned about their perfusion and you're thinking of adding more more volume, you can put flow patch on and watch in real time. Am I helping this patient? You can uh, flow patch also gives you a um jugular Doppler so you can have a sense of what the filling pressures are like of their the right heart based on the the venous uh, Doppler waveform and really help guide where is this patient on their cardiac efficiency curve? If I give them more fluids, are they going to pump more blood? Or if I give them more fluids, is it just going to congest the system and put them into worsening heart failure, worsening pulmonary edema, and continue to congest the kidney? So it's a, it's a very um, nuanced question, but in the resuscitation, really what we're trying to help the anti-clinician know is like, is this, are we, are we? preventing um, who, our, our goal is to prevent fluid overload and the way we do that is making sure that patients who are no longer benefiting from fluids stop getting okay. those fluids instead of continuing with the resuscitation strategy that's no longer
1: yeah so to translate that into lay english uh there is a way or there are multiple ways in which both doppler and uh just plain old ultrasonography of the juggler can allow for assessment of whether or not a patient needs fluids, correct?
0: I think on our our, our very
1: high level. Yes. Okay. We're not going to dive too far into details there. Um, So kind of zooming out a little bit more, you keep on mentioning resuscitation, um, but what are the exact clinical scenarios that would benefit from the use of of the flow patch? Is it in the ED? Is it in the critical care unit? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, great question. Well, so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll kind of come back to there, starting with the clinical unmet need. And then we we had a conversation really about the hammer and the nail, right? So um, John is my co-founder's uh, ICU doc. And the clinical pain point there he had was he was the person in the ICU who is Receiving patients that were septic that came in that had been over resuscitated with IV fluids. And then, yeah, he was having a, a very complex clinical course where those patients either need mechanical ventilation or uh, diuresis or um, renal replacement therapy. And, you know, he was trying to undo the, the fluids that came on um, from there, the earlier care. Yeah. And really, they the last 10 years, 15 years, a, a number of studies have come out that both have identified that, you know, 30 to 50% of the patients coming through the ED, by the time they leave the ED, sometime in that, that um, period, they become uh, fluid unresponsive. So, you know, if you're continuing to give fluids as they leave the ED and up into the ICU, you could be putting them at risk of fluid overload and causing increased uh, comorbidities that don't necessarily need to either it could have even been prevented. So that's kind of the, the goal or the clinical one that, that we had identified. When we started, Let, let's be more precise. Let's help clinicians be more precise with fluids and give them a way to identify when these patients are no longer benefiting so that we can stop, um, giving the fluids and really improve patient, patiency so hmm. kind of step one, he. So that that patient pathway really happens in the emergency department through the ICU or emergency department through maybe a step down unit or general medicine, depending on how um, the patient's course of sepsis uh, progresses. That said, blood flow on a very general uh, level is critically important. Right? If you if I said, you know, ask you a clinician's blood flow important? I think you know. <laughs> You know, we, we can't sustain life without it. So yes, right. But how we measure blood flow today, you know, to where we were earlier, it's really technically challenging. And you'd think that we'd have a more easily accessible solution, and which is really where we went through our start with the flow patch. Do so you think of other places in the hospital where understanding how blood flow is changing in real time can be important? Imagine patient in cardiac arrest, get chest compressions. You want to ask the question, is there ROS? you know, as there return spontaneous circulation, are there needed beats for we compression Well, Doppler is a really good way to assess that. And you know, our technology is really nicely suited to being able to be hands off and be able to get a really fast interpretation. So resuscitation, uh, undifferentiated shots of sepsis patients coming in the hospital that you're, you're bringing volume resuscitation specifically if they have underlying uh, comorbidities like CHF for history of, I mean, dysfunction. And then, uh, in the trauma setting, just having something that fast time, the first vital. and the device that we, um, built is really, it's about the size of an Apple watch. It's, it's very small, can be deployed um, very quickly and it works really well in tight environment because of the small. Prince of the ambulance, air ambulance, it's really well suited to that environment as well. So being able to put it on a patient and get real time vitals that are uh, very sensitive to uh, hemorrhage is, is important. And that's one another area where Doppler is, is very useful.
1: You Honestly, you went all over the place there. You went from uh, EMTs to emerge to ICU to step downs. Um, and honestly, if we're talking about fluid status as well, then uh, preventing bounce back from heart failure discharges would have a huge impact. So the next logical question, at least in my head from a health economic standpoint, if you zoom even uh, out even further, is what is the actual health economic impact of uh, preventing, for example, uh, fluid overload or uh, knowing whether or not a patient uh, is hemorrhaging or even uh, preventing heart failure, uh, readmissions.
0: Yeah. Three great and different, uh, questions, but I'll, I'll stick to the sepsis and volume sure.
1: load story,
0: because that's the one that we're, uh, most acutely focused on, um, cool. right now, both Sonics. So in 2020, a really nice trial came out, it's called fresh as a randomized RCT or sorry, randomized control trial in RCT that, um, looked at, uh, Standard care resuscitation versus precision fluid management during resuscitation. I think it was about 150 patients, uh, five-center study. And what they found was patients that were in the precision resuscitation ended up with uh, fewer fluids onboarded, uh, less time in the ICU, uh U.S. need for mechanical ventilation. I think the number needed to treat was about one in five, one in six.
1: That's really and good.
0: The need for renal replacement therapy, and that number was like you know, that number needed to treat was one in eight. So this, you know, really a big, um, and there, there was a signal towards mortality, but it was it was empowered for mortality. The primary outcome was uh, reducing interven reducing the need for uh, intervenous fluids. So it's a really nice study that demonstrated that precision matters in fluid resuscitation. And then there have been a number of meta-analyses that have come out afterwards, looking at larger cohorts and the, and and when you take the numbers needed to treat from the FRESH trial and run them out on uh, time saved in the ICU, which is about a day and a half, uh, the need for mechanical ventilation, which is, uh, mechanical ventilation is a very expensive uh, treatment in the ICU. And uh, renal replacement therapy estimates are somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000 in additional cost for uh, patients who are boot overloaded during their sepsis care bathway. So if you can make that better decision earlier and divert the patient from even having to go to the ICU, the cost savings are uh, remarkable and the health economics for the patient and uh, I don't know if you've, as a clinician you've seen, uh, mechanical ventilation for, but, you know, it's, it's not something that is, uh, is nice to be on and it, it can be prevented. I think that's a, a very meaningful patient-centric outcome. So, you know, the, the fact that we were able to demonstrate reduced need for mechanical ventilation and renal replacement therapy are big, um, big benefits to why precision fluid management matters in addition to the economic story.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that's $15,000 potentially per patient. Uh, And there are many patients who flow in and out of ICU or step down units who require those extra therapies. And that's on top of other use cases that aren't yet quantified when it comes to health economic benefits. So certainly there's quite a large health economic benefit. There's also clinical benefit, as you mentioned as well. And that's super interesting to see. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.